This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. We turn from this issue to the whole business of civil disobedience and revolution, which may occupy us for the rest of today. Uh, Civil disobedience is on the minds of a lot of us these days because, of course, we remember we remember the heroic black people who fought for who fought for freedom and justice in the South. And those of us, those of you who are too young to remember those battles, um, um, there is there is absolutely no reason to minimize the significance of what those people accomplished. They did it nonviolently. Certainly their cause was just. What some of us insist upon, however, is that the contemporary battle with regard to abortion should be treated with the same kind of respect as the early civil rights battles of black people in America's South. And of course, we're now told that this is not a a legitimate instance of civil disobedience. The principle is the same. I would argue, in addition, that the whole business of school choice, family choice vis-a-vis education, is a matter of civil rights, where people are pushing their godless agenda uh, into the lives of uh, innocent young kids. Now, it is clear from Scripture that there are numerous instances in the Bible where believers, both Old Testament and New Testament, resisted unjust political authority. And God honored them for doing that. There's the case of the Hebrew midwives in Egypt who were commanded by Pharaoh to destroy Hebrew newborns And they resisted. They refused. There's the case of the New Testament disciples who said, we ought to obey God rather than men. There's the case of the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who said, we will not bow down and worship uh, your idol and do with us what you will, civil disobedience. And uh, numerous other examples that Davis does a good job of drawing your attention to. Um, And then, of course, uh, Davis also goes on and and points out uh, the positions of people like Aquinas and John Calvin, the Augsburg Confession, and so on. Now, there are those who object to civil disobedience, object on the grounds that it leads to anarchy, the breakup of civilization. But clearly, if we're talking about nonviolent resistance, you see, these people who would object to all cases of civil disobedience clearly have a very distorted view of the law. Once you recognize that there is a difference between just law and unjust law, 
there, one of the corollaries of that recognition must be the right of people to resist, uh, to re even rebel against unjust law and unjust uh, rulers. Now, let's... This is the first time we've turned to Davis's book today. Why don't you turn to page 216 and 217 because I want to not only draw your attention to some uh, needed criteria of civil disobedience, but I want to question some of the things that... I, I, I'm not sure that everything Davis says on pages 216 and 17 makes a whole lot of sense. Now, clearly... There is, a, there is good reason to try and identify in advance criteria for justifying acts of civil disobedience. But let's see if all of Davis's criteria make a whole lot of sense. His first one appears at the bottom of page 216. The first criterion is that the law being resisted must be unjust and immoral and clearly contrary to the will of God. I'd put a check by that. We shouldn't resist laws simply out of whim or for reasons of self-interest. The law that we are resisting must clearly be unjust and immoral. It must be a violation of the will of God. You don't go out there and disrupt society just because um, somebody is, let's say, discriminating against the Cleveland Indians. Um, second principle. And here I have a question mark. Legal means of changing the unjust situation should have been exhausted. Now, I'm not so sure about that. Let's take Operation Rescue. Let's take the whole abortion thing. Clearly, we have not exhausted all legal means. Clearly, we are on the brink of some Supreme Court decisions thank God, that are going to overturn Roe versus Wade and, and here comes the regret, return, uh, return this whole business to state legislatures. What that means, of course, is that it will then be no longer the law of the whole land that abortion on demand can occur, that states, state legislatures will have to fight this out and there's a good chance that the number of states in which innocent babies can be killed will be severely restricted. People will still kill them in New York City, probably still kill them in Connecticut and New Jersey, but maybe we'll stop the killing in states like Kentucky. Most likely we will stop the killing in Pennsylvania. All right, so we can maybe save hundreds of thousands of unborn children a year. Now, should we just sit on our hands until until the courts have finally settled this uh, once and for all. I don't think so. Uh, I think what we're, what we're, what we're seeing are, are courageous people agitating, trying to raise the level of society's consciousness on this matter. Maybe, maybe they're not always doing it in the right way, but when people are dying, you just... I mean, can you, can you imagine... Can you imagine two people picketing, picketing outside of a German concentration camp and somebody else coming along and saying, well, look, we haven't yet exhausted all legal means in this matter. Why don't you put, you know, 
why don't you put your picket signs down and give us a few more years? Well, in a few more years, there won't be any Jews left in Europe. He does say there may, of course, be situations in which the injustice is so grave and immediate that there is simply no time for lengthy legal appeals. Okay, thank you for correcting me on that. Number three. Here I think I do disagree with Davis. The act of disobedience must be public rather than clandestine. Now, he does have, he does have a reason for saying this. The purpose of civil disobedience is to get the public's attention focused on unjust laws. It's kind of hard to get the, the public's attention focused on unjust laws if you're doing it secretively. Right? The whole purpose to civil disobedience does seem to be the need for public actions. However, there are times I would suggest when there can indeed be legitimate acts of civil disobedience which must be secretive and clandestine. Those Christians who protected Jewish people from the uh, grip of the Nazi, Nazi forces during World War II, they could hardly make their actions public the fact that they were resisting unjust laws at the risk of their own uh, life and, and, and well-being was an act of civil disobedience, but it could not have been made public, right? Or else they'd have been carted off. There wouldn't have been anybody left to, to save those Jewish lives. In the case of the Hebrew midwives, they could hardly they could hardly have made their civil disobedience known publicly because then Pharaoh would have put them out of business as midwives and would have issued an edict that uh, the only midwives, uh, all midwives would have to be e Egyptians. Public civil disobedience is much more difficult in a totalitarian, under a totalitarian regime like the Pharaoh or like the Nazis, where if you go public with your disobedience, you're going to get killed, you're going to get shot. But you're saying, so long as we are dealing with a reasonably democratic government, um, there uh, the civil disobedience 